love, can I, can I, can I just uh, unload on you for a moment? I love Christmas. Whew, I love Christmas with a kind of passion that looks like rage sometimes. I love I love Christmas. Um, question, how many of you guys have uh, Christmas lights up on your house? Awesome. As someone who has kids, uh, thank you. Uh, it's magical. It's awesome. We love it. Uh, how many of you guys have a Christmas tree up right now? Yeah? Today, normally, historically for us, would be the day that we would go get a tree. Um, glad for us, based on the weather, uh, we went last week. Uh, but we would normally go get a tree today, December 3rd. We've done it for years because today is my wife's birthday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, we did the same thing in first service. We applauded, and I don't know why we, yeah, you didn't die. Um, <laughs> but I say that I promised her that I would not sing, and I wouldn't make you sing. But, but if you know her, if you see her on Facebook, uh, if you text her, text her and text her happy birthday because I didn't promise her that I wouldn't encourage you to harass her all day with uh, kind messages. So, hey, Christmas is coming up um, December 23rd and December 24th. We're having Christmas services. And, and, and I believe, if you haven't heard this spiel, this is the way it goes. I believe that of all the people in the world, that the people who should celebrate Christmas with the most aggression, with the most excitement, maybe even with recklessness, is followers of Jesus, right? Sometimes we get a little kind of arm's distance from Christmas because we're like, oh, it's commercialized, blah, 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 right? Here's the thing. We of all people, we of all people know that this, this thing that we celebrate is the greatest news the world has ever heard, that God came after us. The, the rest of the world, right, if you're not following Jesus, like it's a good holiday, you give presents to people, you make food that... You know, you maybe only make once a year. You hang out with family members you don't like. And, and, and then you give, and if you, don't tell me that you like them. Because if you did, you'd hang out with them all year round. It's just Christmas comes around and you feel guilty. And so you hang out with those people. And, right? But as believers, like we know that God himself came after us. And that's what we're celebrating. So we celebrate big. December 23rd, 6 p.m. December 24th, 3 and 5. We'd love for you to join us. Um, I'll also say, I mentioned this last week that um, I know that this schedule doesn't work for everybody, that the way we do Christmas doesn't work for everybody. In fact, before first service, someone came up to me and they said, um, hey, uh, we're probably gonna have to miss Christmas this year. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I mean, it's you know, education town, middle of Christmas, all that kind of stuff. College students, a lot of them are gone. If you're in teaching, you've got a couple weeks off, all that kind of stuff. And they said, yeah, my mom just moved to the area and... Um, she doesn't want to come to Xmas at MCC. And I said, that's perfect. Then on the back, here's the thing. On, if there's cards around the church that has information about what's going on at Christmas. On the back, there's a list of all the churches in our community that are doing something on Christmas Eve. And you should go there and celebrate with recklessness. And, and then we'll, we'll just see you in January, okay? So whatever, wherever you're here or you're somewhere else or you're off in a different state, we hope that you will celebrate Christmas uh, recklessly with, with such joy. And so with Christmas coming, we're in the middle of the sermon series um, called He Shall Be Called. And, and we're, we're going through this verse in Isaiah, right? And um, it talks about the names that God says that we're to call the Messiah, that he shall be called, and that this Messiah, the Savior's coming. And we talked last week, if you weren't here last week, we talked about how what we call things says something about the relationship we have with that person or that thing, 
right? Um, it tells people, it's kind of a public declaration, the kind of relationship that we have with people when we refer to them by things. And God's saying, here's how I want you to relate to me. Last week, we talked about wonderful counsel. This week, we're going to move into the next one. Um, and it got me thinking, I don't know if you've seen this before. There was this 2016, the, um, the um, Jason, you're going to hate me. Um, I swear we got this fixed between services. No? Here we go. You want to click on it for me? There we go. 2016, the uh, British government commissioned this ship. They finished the ship. I don't know if commission means they started or they finished, but they, they made this boat, okay? And it's very big and it's very expensive. I think the quote I saw was $115 million for this one boat, right? Because if we know anything about the government, they're good at not being efficient. And so they built this big boat right here. Right, and it's it was um, uh, spectacular. It's um, Arctic exploration. It has all this technology and all these kind of, and it has several submarines on the boat. Crazy ship, right? And so someone thought someone had this idea, and they thought, you know what? Um, we spent a lot of taxpayer money. It's their boat. Why don't we let the taxpayers decide what to name this boat? Right. And so they did a public survey, and you could go on this website that they'd set out, and you could submit a name, you could vote, they would show you like the top 10 most popular names of time, you could vote for a name, um, which turned out to be a bad idea. Because, have you been around people? You know what the name of this boat was voted to be? Let me introduce you to Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> now, someone in the government was smart enough to say, we spent $115 million. We cannot send out RRS Bodie McBoatface with any amount of respect, okay? We cannot recruit international um, scientists, the top of the world, to go, discover, to go uh, research the Arctic on Bodie McBoatface. We can't come into port calling in on... This is Bodie McBoatface asking to docky McDockface, right? Now, so, so they didn't. They named it Sir David Attenborough, who apparently is a famous English person. That's why he's called Sir. Now, here's the thing. They, they, they honored the name, okay? And so they actually named one of the subs. Hit me with the next picture. They actually named one of the subs Bodie McBoatface, which again shows that people are stupid because the clear answer is this shouldn't be Bodie McBoatface, this is Subby McSubface. Okay? Now, you could, you could excuse someone for one bad idea because they're like, you know, oh, we didn't think, oh, we didn't realize, like, people troll Twitter and that this would be a bad idea and people would get a bunch of people together to vote for a really bad idea, right? They, they didn't realize that. And so you could say, well, but here's the problem. This owl, one of these two owls, if you can tell them the difference, I can't, okay? One of these two owls was to be the mascot for another British campaign in 2012, four years prior. It was going to be an adopt-a-bird campaign. Apparently, they have a lot of birds that need to be adopted in England. I didn't realize that was a problem, okay? And so in 2012, four years before this, someone said, what if we let people name the owl that's going to be the mascot for the Adopt-A-Bird campaign. And so they did the same thing. They create a website. People could vote. Let me introduce you to Allie McCoopface. Isn't that stupid? 
Now, okay, here's the thing, okay? It gets better. You could, you could excuse the English for being dumb. Can we? Do, do I need to explain more? They're just, they, have you seen their teeth, okay? We could excuse the English. Have you, they drive on the wrong side of the road, okay? All the rest of the world has agreed that the side of the road we're gonna drive on. You could excuse the English for doing something dumb a couple times. We beat them in the war, they're still upset, okay? You could excuse them. Here's the problem. Two months after, two months after Bodie McBoatface was commissioned, the U.S. federal government commissioned this B-21 bomber, I think is what it is, B-21 stealth bomber, bomber, and they learned, they thought, you know what, we shouldn't ask the general public. The general public is generally stupid, and they'll come up with a stupid name. But you know what we could do? We should ask the servicemen and women of our armed forces, because they'll take it seriously, and they'll be responsible, and they'll come up with a name. You know what name they came up with? This is Stealthy McStealthface. Isn't that stupid? The humor of it is that names matter. What we call something, by the way, the federal government said, oh, we're not going to call it Stealthy McStealth Face. And they called it, this is called the Raider. That's different, isn't it? Sending the Raider into war as opposed to Stealthy McStealth Face. Because what we call things makes a difference. It changes, it, it defines part of the relationship we have with one another. Isaiah 9, 6 is a passage we've been looking at. And it says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Last week we looked at this Wonderful Counselor one. And we talked about what it means for God to be our counselor and, 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 and what it means for him to be a beautiful, wonderful, amazing counselor to us. This week, we're going to look at this, what it means for God to be a mighty, mighty God. John, John 1 is this fantastic passage. If you, if you want, like if you really want to nerd out on something in the Bible, is just study John 1. The, the opening of John's gospel is just this magnificent writing. It's, a, it's so complex and layered, and there's all this crazy stuff going on, and it's so cool. Like, John spent a lot of time writing John 1. But there's this one spot where he's describing what I would say is how mighty God is, okay? How magnificently, overwhelmingly, unequivocally powerful our God is. And this is what he says about Jesus, right? He knows Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 says that he's going to come and we're going to call him mighty God, powerful God, strong God. And he says this. He says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me describe it to you this way. This week, um, uh, my son came to me. Um, kids, kids are fantastic for Sermon Illustrated. They're just a great resource as a pastor, right? And so my son comes to me, and he says, uh, he comes from down upstairs, and he comes down, and he goes, the, the first sentence he says to me, did Tutankhamun have a demon? And I went, what are you watching upstairs? <laughs> and he goes, King Tut. And I go, oh, okay, okay. So then my brain kind of registers. You know, the, the, the kid uh, pharaoh, right? King Tut. 
Was the devil in him? And I go, well, I don't, I don't know. We had a little conversation about um, darkness and demons and spiritual warfare. Just, I mean, <laughs> don't think we're doing like a master's class in theology. My son is seven years old and has an attention span of a gnat. My parents are here. Can I get an amen? amen? Okay. Okay. We had a short little conversation, right? But, but here's what I said to him. I, I, could re- I could tell that he was kind of nervous. He was nervous about dark things, right? And, and kind of a recognition and him beginning to realize as he gets older that there are, there are dark things in this world, right? And so I took him, I said, oh, come here, come here, come here, here, let me show you something. And so I took him into our bedroom and it's Christmas, those Christmas lights everywhere so our, our bedroom looked like daylight. And so I took him into our bathroom and then to our closet and I turned all the lights off and closed the doors as we went in and we sat in the dark and I said, I said, what it, what's it like in here? He said, it's dark. I said, okay, watch. Watch, you ready? You ready? And I put my hand on the light switch and I said, you ready? Watch this, watch this. Click. And the light came on. And I go, did you see what happened? He was as unimpressed as you are right now in my illustration. And he goes, you turn the light on. <laughs> yeah, 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 but watch, watch, watch. I'm gonna do it again, I'm gonna do it again. So I turned the light off. I said, what's it right now? It's dark. Okay, you ready? Ready, ready, watch, watch. What is it now? You turn the light on. And I go, yeah, did you see that? And he just kind of looked at me and I go, look, 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 listen. I turned the light on. Did you see any corner of this room that there was a war between dark and light? No. As soon as the light came on, the darkness was vanquished. The image that John uses to describe the power of Jesus is that of light in a dark room. That there is no struggle. That the God that we worship, that Jesus contained in himself who he is as God himself, there is no wrestling. There's no struggle. There's no corner where like darkness is like trying to get an arm bar going, but light is like fighting him and punching him in the face. Like there's no wrestling. The light enters and darkness vanquishes. You think about in the beginning, in Genesis, the way the writer of Genesis describes it, he says that, is that God spoke and there was light. Amidst the chaos and the darkness and the mess of the world, God speaks. And there is such power in him that there is. You, you see, he, it, we, we have... Um, so we so easily in our culture, in the narrative, in the language we use, have, um, have, have adopted this kind of idea from, from books and movies and stories we tell each other and folklore where there's this like wrestling between good and evil. And we think that like there, there's like these, these two mighty generals at war with one another and like maybe like a civil war battle and they've all lined up one next to another and they march at one another and we're uncertain. The world is uncertain. Is darkness gonna win or is good gonna win? Is evil gonna win or is, or is, or is grace and mercy gonna win? And we're uncertain, but we think the way we often describe it is we, we say, well, we know. We know, we know that light wins, that goodness wins, that God wins. But that's not, that's not the way the Bible describes reality. The Bible do, does not describe two equal forces warring with one another. 
over some common turf and there's some uncertainty and there's casualties on both sides. The way God describe, the way the scriptures describe God's relationship to the darkness of the world is he speaks and it flees. There's a, a spot, it's one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite stories. And just because this one little phrase, there's the story, um, Lazarus, right? Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for a couple days. He's decaying in a hillside in a tomb. They've carved out, they've put him in the tomb. They've wrapped his whole body up and slid him into this little alcove and put a rock in front of it. And Jesus shows up, and I read this one commentary, and it's just changed the way that I think about this story and the way I think about God, and I just love holding on to this part of the story because he points out, he says this. He says, God is so mighty. Jesus has such power in his words that, that Jesus says a few words, but they're important that he says every single word. The words he says is he says, Lazarus, come out, right? And the commentator points this out. He says, if he had not said Lazarus, every dead body in that hill would have come out. Can you imagine just the panic, right? Like Jesus forgets his script. He forgets his line. Like Lazarus, come. and he just says, come out. All of a sudden there's this like hands pawing out of the, like it would be the worst horror movie you've ever seen in your life. And he'd be like, no, 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 go back, go back. But all Jesus has to do to breathe life into a dead body is speak the words. Lazarus, come out. And in the midst of darkness and decay and death, light bursts forth. This is the power of the God that we worship, that we serve. This is the power of Jesus, mighty God. So what does it mean for us? I think it means a couple things. I, I think one of the profound, beautiful truths is that it means that God is mighty enough to work in you. He's mighty enough to work in you. I, I, um, a pastor friend of mine, he, he was a um, son of an angry alcoholic who was the son of an angry alcoholic who was the son of an angry alcoholic, and he says this. He says, this is my prayer every single day, that God might let that die with me. And our hope is that he can, that God is so mighty and powerful that generation after generation after generation of brokenness, depths of brokenness that has exploded into our family tree and into our lives and into our soul, that God is so mighty that he can redeem and restore and fix those things and bring light into the darkness to where you can be the end of the line for that. Paul writes to the church at Philippi. He writes to the church at Philippi, um, and, and he says this, this uh, sentence here, Philippians 1, verse 6. He says, For I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot of things in this. First one is this, is to notice this, is he says he's going to carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to carry it out, which means, which means here, um, this side of heaven, you ain't going to be fixed. At least not all the way. That God's still got work to do on you. That there's still, that, that part of following Jesus is us acknowledging it's us recognizing we, we have to get rid of this facade as the church that we're somehow fixed people or that the only people allowed on platforms like this are fixed people. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be broken, is to acknowledge our brokenness and our desperate need for a Savior. And my hope is that Jesus will continue to carry on to completion, 
the work he began in me. Your hope is that God will continue, that he is able to continue to bring to completion the work that he began in you, that began with the cross, but he's not done yet. But he is able. He is able. There is nothing in you that God is not able to redeem and restore. So often, far too often, we believe the lies of the enemy and we just begin to kind of give in and say, well, this is just the way I am. This is just the way my family is. This is just the way I, uh, I, you know, this is just everything. They're never gonna change. That's not what Paul says. He says we're confident. He who began, who he who went to the cross To begin the good work in you, he is able, he is mighty enough to move the unmovable in you, to restore the dead and broken in you. But you see, this verse here comes after uh, Philippians 1.5. That's how that works in the Bible, Philippians 1.5 and then Philippians 1.6. But look at what he says in Philippians 1.5 because this is important. God is mighty enough to work in you, but the end goal is not simply working in you. Okay, Um, you need to know this about following Jesus. The end goal of Jesus is saving you isn't just to save you, okay? Here, Here, look, he says this. I thank my God for you. In view of your participation in the gospel, Now, um, the gospel in Greek, it just means the good news. A lot of times we translate it as the gospel when it's like a formal thing, right, which is fine and good. But, But look what he's saying. In view of your participation in the good news from the first day until now, because of your participation, I am confident. Because of the work that God has been doing through the Philippians, he is confident that God can work in the Philippians. God doesn't just want to work in you. God wants to work through you. God is, God is, and maybe what is even more astounding than God's ability to redeem and restore in you is that God wants to use you to bring redemption to other people. And you know why that's so amazing? Because have you met people? Like we come up with Bodie McBoatface. Do you realize that God knew that moment would happen in human history and he looked at all human history and said, you know, the best option I got here is to work through those people. It's been his plan from the beginning. Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says this. Um, Matthew 28 has what we call the Great Commission. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And, and he, he phrases it a little differently, but it's the same thing. He says this, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be filled with power. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, part of the triune God, right? The Holy Spirit will dwell in you. The, the, the mighty God, the triune God is the mighty God. He will dwell in you. And you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is absurd from our perspective. It doesn't seem like there was any conversation when God said this, right? But I can imagine if this had been like six months before, the kind of conversations that would have happened with the disciples when God was like, when Jesus was like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna leave here, I'm gonna go to heaven. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need you guys to take this on, right? And Peter, Peter, I, I feel like I most relate to Peter because um, Peter has zero filter. I remember having conversations with my parents when I was uh, a kid and um, that 
there were times in my life where my brain and my mouth didn't connect with one another. And, and I mean it this way. There are times where I would say things where I would hear them for the first time the same time you were hearing them, right? Because my mouth would just blah, and it got me in trouble all the time in class, right? But I can just imagine Peter just being like, what, what, what? The, the, the most important, significant message of all of human history, that God's love for us, that God's love for all of creation, God's desire to redeem and restore all things, God's plan of redemption is on us? You find anybody better? I mean, these are the same disciples that when Jesus dies, you know where they are? They're hiding in a locked room. And God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not about you. What God wants to do through you, look again at Acts 1, look again at Acts 1. What God wants to do through you is not because of your power. What God wants to do through you is not because of how impressive you are, but because God is so mighty that he can use broken and busted people like us with broken and busted stories to bring redemption. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5, it says that he has given us, he has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. God wants to use broken vessels like us to bring healing and hope to a broken and dark world. He wants to work through us. God is so mighty that he can work through me and you and that his spirit can dwell in you and work mightily. Uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4 says this. Each one, okay, uh, let's just pause there um, so that you know in the Greek, this means each one. It means all of you, right? What we're about to read in 1 Peter applies to you and to you and to you and to you. And if you're online, it applies to me, every single one of us, okay? Now look at what he says. Every single one of us, as good managers of God's different gifts, must use for the good of others the special gift he has received from God. One of the lies we often believe is that God can't use us because I don't have anything to bring. God can't use me because you don't know my story. God can't use me because look at where I've been. God can't use me because I don't know all the things to say. I don't have all the answers. I don't have the right gifts. I don't have the um, talents to do those things or to do those things. Here's what First Peter says. He says, he says oh, God's mission, God's ministry, God's message throughout the world he wants to work through you and that he has entrusted you as a good manager with certain gifts, with certain opportunities, with certain talents, with certain resources. There are places and people and stories you can have and you can tell that nobody else in this room can. That God wants to use you. I, I don't know how much more I can say. God is so mighty that he wants to use you. And if every single one of us as followers of Jesus understood that God wants to do amazing and miraculous and life-changing acts of grace and mercy and redemption through the life you live right now, it'd be transformative for the communities we're a part of. But too often we look at ourselves and, oh, I can't do it. I don't know. I don't have the right things, blah, 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 whatever it is. But the gospel, the, the scriptures tell us over and over again, no, no, no. 
The power is that God is mighty enough to work through you in all the ways he's called you to, and he has called you and equipped you. Lastly, God can work in you. God is mighty enough to work in you. God is mighty enough to work through you, and God is mighty enough to work for you. Um, Joshua 1.9, I have it uh, in my office. It's, I love this verse um, for a lot of reasons that we don't have time to get into. Um, but he's writing to Joshua. And if you don't know the story of Joshua, this is like after the Exodus, Moses and the, the Ten Commandments and all that, and the, the golden calf and all this kinds of thing. And Moses has died, right? And so Joshua's mentor is gone. The guy who led him out of Egypt is gone. And God says, I'm gonna use you, Joshua. And Joshua looks around and he's like, <laughs> with these people, right? And this is how the book of Joshua begins. And he says this, have I not commanded you, Right? God just says, didn't I already tell you? How many times have we got to be told over and over again? I know I do. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Here's why God tells him to be strong and courageous and not be afraid. You know why? Because he's afraid. And maybe today, you come in here, and you got things in your life that you're afraid of, and you're genuine, like, and, and maybe it's decisions that have to be made, futures that are unknown, relationship things, things that are going on in the world, and you have fear. And it's like real, genuine, I'm not like making a molehill, a mountain out of a molehill, kind of like genuine, real fear about uncertainty, anxiety, worry about things. God begins his words to Joshua, don't be afraid, but here's why. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In this world, in this life, it matters who you travel with. Um, there's a, I, I heard a, a preacher's, preacher's joke, which um, if you don't know preacher's jokes, they're, they're like um, dad jokes, right? Like they're kind of purposely bad and corny. Um, but they've lasted much longer as sermon illustrations. And so I heard this preacher joke, and um, the, the story goes like this. There are two guys in the parking lot. One guy's backing out of a parking spot. Another guy's driving to the parking lot, and neither of them are paying attention, right? And so what happens when people aren't paying attention in the parking lot? They run into each other, right? And so the first guy gets out of the car, and it's a really nice car. It's a very expensive car, and he's a pretty young guy, a pretty haughty kind of guy, he got a short temper, and he gets out of his car, and he's hot, right? Because he's got damaged his, his nice, new, expensive, great car, right? And he's hot, and the other guy gets out of his car a little bit slower. He's, he's, he's an old guy. He's pretty old, and he gets out of his car, and uh, the guy sees an opportunity. He sees a moment, right? Because he sees this kind of frail, old man. And so, so he, he gets riled up real quick, the young guy does. And he starts going, look, look at what you did. Look at what you did. Did you see the car you hit? Did you, could you even see? Should you even be driving? Are you even allowed to drive? What would happen if the cops show up? I bet if the cops showed up, they'd see that you're not fit to be driving. You shouldn't be out here driving at all. I'm going to call the cops. And I'm going to tell them, and they're going to take your license. And he kind of goes off on this guy, and the old guy kind of walks around the door, and he looks towards the front, and he's kind of surveying it, and he, oh, mm, oh. You know, he's kind of a frail older guy, and he just keeps humming and looking at it, and the guy's like, the guy's like okay, okay, here's, here's the deal. I got a deal for you. I got a deal for you. If you write me a check for $5,000 right now, I won't call anybody. We won't call insurance. You can drive away, and it'll be just fine. And the guy's like, oh, oh, I don't, I don't have $5,000. And he's kind of taken aback, and he's still looking at the damage of the two bumpers smashed together. 
And, and the guy's like, well, you better give me $5,000 or I'm gonna call the cops. And if I call the cops, they're gonna show up. They're gonna see you're unfit to drive. They're gonna take your license. This may be the last time you ever drive a car in your entire life. You better give me the money. And the old guy goes, oh, um, well, um, uh, let, me, let me call my son. Let me call my son. My son will know what to do. Let me call my son. And so he kind of waddles his way back to his car and he's kind of shoveling around trying to find his cell phone in his car and he, he finds it and, you know, and he, he, he calls his son and he, he says, uh, he says uh, my son will know what to do. He, he, he trains dolphins. He'll know what to do. And the, the young guy said, I don't, I don't care if he trains elephants. Like, just give me $5,000, right? And so the guy calls and he's talking on the phone and he says, you know, uh, you know, relax and, and, and I don't know what to do and he wants $5,000. And, and the young guy grabs the phone from him and he says, he says uh, get here, get here with $5,000 or I'm going to call the cops on your dad and they're going to take his license away. You're going to have to drive him everywhere. And, and the guy goes, okay, okay, hey, just relax. Uh, I'll be there in 10 minutes, right? And so they kind of sit there and they wait and the old guy just kind of keeps looking at the damage and, and um, the, the, the son pulls up. And the son's not real um, interested in the uh, bravado of the young guy. And they kind of get in each other's face. They get a little shoving match. The, guy, the, the, the son twists him into a pretzel, tells him to never speak disrespectfully to another old person again in his life. The guy says, uncle, and he pushes him in a car and he drives away without giving him a penny, right? And he turns to his dad and he says, dad, it's gonna, it's gonna be fine. But I need you to remember, I don't train dolphins, I train SEALs. I train Navy SEALs, Dad. <laughs> right? Because it matters who you travel with. Isaiah. Isaiah writes this prophecy to a bunch of people that are scared of very real, tangible violence and war and darkness in this world. And he says, know this. The one who travels with you, he is the mighty God. God speaks to Joshua, a man who's terrified, unsure of what the future holds, and he says, remember, I am the mighty God who goes with you. It matters who you travel with. The God that we worship, the God that we serve, Jesus himself is so mighty and powerful that the gift of one man transformed and changed all of human history. That our God is so mighty and powerful. He didn't have to come with horses. He didn't have to come with swords. He came as a baby. He was so confident and unwaveringly sure of his ability to conquer darkness. He submitted himself and emptied himself and became like us and became a baby, and that through a baby he might conquer all the things of this world. But in the face of darkness and death and decay and destruction and violence, he did not rise up on a horse with a sword and a spear to crush and destroy and murder. He himself was murdered. And in his act of death, he is so mighty and powerful that in his act of death, he brought life and freedom and hope and conquered darkness 
through his death. This is the God we walk with. So I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what scary things are out there. I don't know what scary things are around the future for you. The uncertainty, the fear, the questions about decisions you have to make, about relationships, about things going on in the world. But what I want you to know is these things, is that God is able to work in you, he's able to work through you, and that wherever you go, our mighty, unchallenged, overwhelmingly powerful God walks with you. So in a world of darkness, may we walk with the light. In a world of fear, may we walk with confidence. In a world of apathy, may we walk with compassion. And in a world with, full of anger and hatred and violence, may we walk with a quiet confidence of grace and mercy and kindness. For we are the ones who walk with our mighty God.